0: Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, um, we, we do pray that you would help us to listen to your word this day. Uh, and as, even as we've just heard it read, uh, we pray uh, that you would make us people increasingly uh, who don't just hear your word, but do it, uh, put it into practice. And so we pray that for ourselves this day. Amen. Uh, so I was thinking during the week uh, that it, it's actually pretty easy to fake it as a Christian, uh, it's not that hard to convince other people that you're a true disciple of Christ. All you've got to do, uh, if I, was on a, I could have been a bit more creative and had a kind of a mixing bowl and stuff, but really all you have to do uh, is mix together a few different ingredients. Right, so here's some tips. Uh, first, uh, you've got to work on your biblical vocab. Like you get, you get the jargon sorted out uh, so people can hear you saying all the right things. Uh, earlier this year, our gospel community studied the book of Judges. Uh, it's a pretty confronting book. Uh, and in Judges chapter 12, uh, the Gileadites are at war with the Ephraimites. Uh, and so the, the Gileadites developed a, a password uh, which people have to say before they'll let them into their territory. Uh, the password is Shibboleth. Uh, you may have heard that word before, Shibboleth. Uh, but for some reason, the Ephraimites couldn't say that. Uh, they could only say Sibboleth. Like maybe they had a, a speech impairment before speech pathologists existed. I'm not sure what it was. But they couldn't say Shibboleth, only Sibboleth. Uh, so whenever An Ephraimite tried to sneak into Gileadite territory, Uh, they couldn't say the password, they weren't let in. Now, I reckon that as Christians, we've got our own shibboleths, our own passwords that we're listening for, Uh, the, the, the things we're listening for before we recognize someone as a Christian. I'm not sure what they are for you. Maybe uh, you listen for someone to talk about when they when they prayed a particular prayer, or invited Jesus into their life, or when they were born again, or when they gave their life to Christ, or whatever it is. You're listening for your passwords. And I reckon if you're around church long enough, you'll soon pick up that jargon. You'll, You'll be able to say those passwords. You'll be able to use them in exactly the right way, and people will will assume that you're a Christian. You'll be accepted. So that's the first thing, get get, get some biblical jargon under control. Another thing you can do is make sure you embrace certain cultural practices, particularly ones that that might be seen as stereotypically Christian. If you can show that you like the same things as most Christians and and particularly that you dislike the same things as most Christians, uh, people will assume you're a Christian and you'll probably be accepted. All right, so learn some jargon, uh, embrace some cultural practices, and third, uh, you've, got to, you've got to have some really solid connections. So you've got to know the right people, uh, so people can say, "Oh, look, you must be a Christian because you, you know you're, you're that pastor's kid, or, or you're from that respectable Christian family, or you grew up in that church or that school, or, or you went to that Christian union group on campus. You must be a Christian." Uh, with these three things mixed together, I reckon it's pretty easy to fake it as a Christian. It's to convince other people that you are a true disciple of Christ. Now, of course, I'm joking, right? I, like, I, I, I'm not suggesting that we actually do this. Uh, because here at the end of Jesus' sermon, he's warning us against doing that. He's warning us against faking it. He's asking us to search our hearts and minds to make sure we're responding rightly to his sermon. To make sure we're, we actually are living as true disciples of his. That's what he's driving at in these, in these verses. Uh, so in this passage, he gives us two uh, main characteristics of, of what a true disciple looks like. right? He says, True disciples are walkers, not just talkers. Uh, and true disciples are doers, not just hearers. Uh, so first, verses 21 to 23, he says, True disciples are walkers, not just talkers. Have a look in verse 21 i'm going to read these verses out Uh, not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven uh, but only the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven Uh, many will say to me on that day lord lord did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name uh, perform many miracles then i will tell them plainly i never knew you away from me you evil doers are very strong words Right here, Jesus gives us an example of someone who who really does say all the right things, don't they? They can really talk the talk of being a Christian. In fact, I want you to notice five things about their profession of faith, right? Five things uh, that I think make it seem like they're a genuine disciple of Jesus, right? The first thing uh, is that this person clearly respects Jesus. Right, verse 21, they they come to Christ and and they're addressing him as their Lord. That's a very, very respectful way to address Jesus, and, and the second thing is that their profession of faith is orthodox. It's biblical, it's solid. It's not like it's whacked out. It's not, they're not saying crazy things about Jesus. They, they know that Jesus is Lord and, and they're willing to profess that he's Lord. And notice that they do it with enthusiasm. Lord, 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 Lord. You know, like there's real passion and zeal and, and commitment to it. In fact, they're so enthusiastic that they're willing to openly confess their faith, just as James and, and Isabel and, and Brendan did just now. But Notice the context of this profession. In verse 22, uh, Jesus says, Many will say to me on that day. But that day is the day of judgment. But it's the public occasion when Jesus has returned. And in front of everyone, these people are willingly professing that Jesus is Lord. And notice also, they're not just uh, publicly professing that he's Lord, they're publicly doing great works in Jesus' name. Look in verse 22. Did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, in your name perform many miracles? But these people are on the platform. They're doing lots of public ministry, great works, in the name of Christ. I think if you read this it ticks all the boxes of a perfect profession of faith. This person says all the right things, they can talk the talk of being a Christian. And so when you're reading verses 21 and 22, you get to verse 23 and it's a bit jarring, isn't it? Because Jesus says he'll tell these people plainly that he never knew them. Away from me, you evildoers. What's his problem with them? Clearly it's not wrong to confess that Jesus is Lord, right? We know that. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, if you declare with your mouth uh, that Jesus is Lord and and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So no one can enter God's kingdom without saying Lord, Lord. It's kind of a non-negotiable thing. All true Christians say Lord, Lord. But what Jesus is saying here is that not everyone who says Lord, Lord is a Christian. It's quite possible to say, Lord, Lord, in such a way that you're not a Christian. That's, that's confronting. Jesus is saying it's not enough to believe all the right things in your head. The doctrine quiz comes up and you nail it. It's not enough. It's not enough to, to be really passionate or, or zealous about your faith. It's not even enough to do great things for Jesus. marvelous works in the name of Christ. There's nothing wrong with those things, but it's not enough. That last one's probably the most challenging, isn't it? How is it possible that someone uh, who's prophesying in Jesus' name or or driving out demons in his name or performing miracles in his name, how can they be rejected by Jesus on the last day? Well, take, Take prophesying, which in lots of ways is like preaching. I mean, not exactly the same, but it's someone claiming to be a messenger of God's word. If you remember last week, uh, we saw that uh, there are many people who claim to be messengers of God's word, but they're actually messengers of Satan. What Jesus says, they're ferocious wolves, they're not sheep. Right? So so they're doing all this public ministry, supposedly in the name of Christ, but Christ doesn't know them at all. They're not even a part of his flock. Clearly, that's possible. What about casting out demons? Well, in in Luke chapter 10, uh, you you can read this later on, but Judas uh, is among the the 72 disciples that Jesus sends out on mission. And one of the things they do is cast out demons. Judas does that. And ultimately, Judas is shown uh, not to be the real deal as a follower of Jesus. What about people performing miracles in Jesus' name? Well, uh, Matthew chapter 24. If you've got Matthew open, you could flick on to Matthew chapter 24, verse 24. Matthew 24, verse 24. Jesus says, "Uh, "False messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect." Right? So, so it's it's possible that a so-called Christian leader might be able to do great things, right? Miraculous works but that says nothing about whether they know Christ. Nothing at all. Well, we've got to be aware of that. Uh, There are lots of Christian leaders today who have really big churches, big followings. Uh, They claim to be doing miraculous works in Jesus' name. And I'm sure some people think, well, it must be real because they're doing it in Jesus' name. Clearly, that doesn't prove anything. Jesus right here says people will do works, marvellous works, miraculous works in his name, and it's nothing to do with him. I'm not saying that's the case with all of these instances, but it is possible. right? And we know from Ephesians chapter 2 uh, that Satan is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Right? He's a ruler. He's powerful, very powerful. And he'll do anything to stop people following Christ, getting on that narrow road. right? And one thing he will do is raise up leaders who say, Lord, Lord, and give them power to perform false miracles in Jesus' name. That's what Jesus is saying here. It's going to happen. Right, so the, the point in these verses is that it's not enough to just talk the talk of being a Christian. You can't just be someone who says all the right things. If you want to live as a true disciple of Jesus, he's saying you have to walk the walk. Oh, I say that because look, look in verse 21. Right. Jesus tells us what he wants from his disciples. What he wants them to do is to do the will of his Father in heaven. That's what he's after. He wants obedience. People who actually live differently because they're Christians. And once again, in verse 23, the reason Jesus says, away from me to these people, is that they're evildoers. They're great at talking the talk, but they're not actually walking the walk. So true disciples are not just people who can say all the right things, who believe all the right things in their head, Right, true disciples uh, are people who, who allow those truths that they believe in their head to trickle down to their heart and into their hands so they actually live differently. Right, they, they start to embody in their actual life uh, some of the other things Jesus has said in his sermon to this point. Right, so if you want to flick back, uh, to, if you've got your Bible open, uh, which I recommend you could flick back to the start of Jesus' sermon, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Uh, And you'll find this is where we began uh, quite a number of months ago, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, with the Beatitudes. And you might remember me saying that these Beatitudes are the character traits of true disciples of Christ. They're these character traits that we're supposed to embody more and more as we follow Christ. So Jesus Jesus is saying, uh, my true disciples will be people uh, who increasingly are poor in spirit. They know that before a holy and perfect God, that they're spiritually bankrupt, right? They're poor. They've got nothing to offer. That's a character trait. We'll realize, Jesus says, that we're, as, we, as we recognize that we're poor in spirit, we'll increasingly mourn at our sin. We'll be grieved, not just by the consequences of our sin for us, but on other people. And we'll hunger and thirst for righteousness, longing for the moment when Jesus returns to make us holy and righteous, so, so, we, so we no longer have to struggle with sin. We'll be people, Jesus says, who are merciful because we've experienced God's mercy. We'll pursue purity in heart, a heart that's increasingly devoted to Christ because we know he's been so devoted to us that he'd go to the cross for us. Right? We'll be people who, who seek to make, make peace with others, even at cost to ourselves because God has made peace at us at great cost to himself. Those are just some of the traits. You can read through the whole sermon. uh, There's all these traits of true disciples of Christ, people who who are not seeking to do their own will, Jesus says, Matthew 7, verse 21, but they're seeking to do the will of their Father in heaven. And I know that as I say that, some of you will think I'm saying, uh, you've got to obey God or you won't enter his kingdom. Right? Obedience comes and then you're a part of the kingdom. Right? But that's not what I'm saying at all. Uh, Tim Keller, he is a pastor of a, of a Presbyterian church in New York, uh, has helpfully pointed out that the basic message of pretty much every religion in the world is that I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Right, so traditionally, you know, I've followed these rules, I've performed these rituals, I've been on this pilgrimage, I've observed these rites, I've obeyed a whole bunch of stuff, uh, so therefore I'm accepted, I'm in, eternal life, paradise, whatever it is. Uh, that, that is not Christianity. The basic message of Christianity is, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. And that's, what, that's exactly what we've got here. Right? Remember who Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to his disciples, He's speaking to people who've already been accepted into God's kingdom. Remember where his sermon started. He said, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. They're already a part of it. It belongs to them. They're already accepted into God's kingdom. Uh, So here he's saying, now that you are accepted, now that you are children in in his father's kingdom, uh, you've actually got to live like your father. You've actually got to do his will. You have to imitate him. You have to start to, to bear the family likeness. And actually, I, I just, I, to some extent, I think that's just what happens when, when kids know uh, that they're loved and accepted by their dads, not because of what they do, but because of who they are. That they're precious kids. They know that. They're secure in that. Right? Kids who know that generally want to be just like their dad. They, they want to imitate him in all sorts of ways. It's not because they're worried they're going to be kicked out of the family if they don't imitate him. It's just that they love and respect their dad so much they want to be like him. You see the difference? They're in, they're loved, they're accepted, they're secure and in response, they're like, oh, I really want to be like my dad. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying he expects us as God's children to do the will of our Father in heaven, to imitate him, not just talk the talk of being Christians, but walk the walk. That's That's what a true disciple looks like. Similarly, in verses 24 to 27, Jesus says true disciples of Christ are people who don't just hear his words, they do his words. I'm not going to read those verses out. I think most of us, many of us here at least, are pretty familiar with that story. The two houses, one house is built on rock and the other is built on sand. And you probably also know that the two houses are metaphors for two different lives, aren't they? Right? Uh, one house, uh, uh, sorry, uh, two different lives, right? Uh, uh, and, and the point there is, is that on the surface, these two houses look almost exactly the same. Uh, but when you look deeper, you, you discover uh, that the, the, the foundations of these lives are very different, the foundations of these houses. So if you'll forgive me uh, perhaps for taking a bit of poetic license with the passage, uh, maybe you can imagine that uh, both these houses Uh, have plenty of bedrooms, right? They they look good. Uh, They've got quaint little windows, maybe some flowers, you know, uh, uh, on the windows. Uh, They're freshly painted. The the gardens are immaculate. Uh, They've got smoke coming out of the chimney, uh, a wonderful white picket fence, right? On the surface, you can imagine, both these houses look fantastic. They they look exactly the same. Uh, But when you look deeper at the foundations of these houses, one of them's built on sand uh, and the other's built on rock, And that's why this is really tricky, isn't it? Because two people, two disciples, can look exactly the same on the surface. They go to church, they sing the same songs, they say the same prayers, they they give their offering. They're doing all the same things. But when you look deeper at the foundation of their lives, you discover that one is wise and the other is a fool. That's what Jesus is saying. But the wise one, the true disciple, is the one who doesn't just hear Jesus' words, they do his words, but they put them into practice. And the foolish one, the false disciple, is the one who's happy to hear lots of Jesus' words, but they don't do them. They never put them into practice. So you're getting the sense of these verses. Once again, in the second half, verses 24 to 27, uh, the key difference is Obedience. Jesus really is driving this. He's saying you're not accepted into God's kingdom because you obey, but now that you are accepted, obedience is non-negotiable. In fact, it's the main way you distinguish yourself as one of my true disciples. Remember, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. John 14. Right, so, so as Christians, we're, we're, uh, as children of God, we're in a privileged but, but kind of dangerous position. Yeah, because as people who call on Jesus as Lord, uh, we really do have to make sure that we're not just listening to Jesus' words, uh, but doing his words. Uh, I think what Jesus is saying here is that you, you might be able to fool others, but you won't be able to fool him. He sees to the very foundations of our life. He knows, uh, he knows, if in our hearts, in our lives, we're mere hearers of His word or doers of His word, right? And I think perhaps this is a particular danger for us, right? Because we, as a church, by and large, uh, take God's word pretty seriously. It's central to pretty much uh, most things that we do. Uh, so we are hearing lots from God's word, but sometimes I wonder what we're doing with that. <laughs> Are we actually doing God's word? Maybe this is just me, right? But uh, perhaps James, uh, Jesus' half brother, had had this passage in mind when he wrote James chapter one verse twenty-two. Uh, James says, uh, "Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and, after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like." But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, James says, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So notice what James compares listening to God's word to. He says it's like looking into a mirror. So imagine for a second that you're about to walk out of the house in the morning and you think, no, 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 I'll just take one last look in the mirror. And so you go over to the mirror, uh, just to make sure, and when you look in the mirror, you discover that you've got a massive uh, coffee stain across your shirt. So what do you do? Like, you're about to go to work for the day. What do you do about the coffee stain? You go and change your shirt, don't you? Or if it's small, you maybe try to clean it up. Right, but what kind of fool sees that in the mirror and doesn't try to change? He just kind of walks out the door and tries to pretend that there's not a stain? Jesus is saying, uh, James is saying but well, no one would do that. But we do do that with God's Word, at least I do. Regularly looking into the mirror of God's word, I'm seeing plenty of stains in my life that I should do something about. but what steps am I actually taking to make changes? And this, I was saying to someone during the week, when I used to teach people how to play trumpet, uh, there was kind of like lessons. anyone who's done teaching. Like you, there, there's foundational modules, right? You learn this and then you move on to this and you move on to this. And, and you, you can't actually move on unless you've learned this step. I think one of the things about uh, what we're blessed with in Australia is you can come to church every week and the pastor will have prepared another sermon whether you do anything with it at all. Isn't that, that's a luxury. We soak in God's word. We just keep getting pumped full of it. And in the week you can look up podcasts and I do this too. And really, we just keep being pumped full. If it was my student coming to me, I'd say, but you haven't learned that bit. Where's the change? We can't move on until something's happened, you see. But in churches, we operate with this different mentality. I think Jesus is saying we've got to put into action uh, what we do. Uh, what we hear. And notice, if you flip back to Matthew 7, he's pretty serious about it. Uh, we know that, but have a look in verses 25 and 27. Right, Jesus re- refers to the storm. Uh, the rain's pouring down, the streams uh, flood, the, the wind blows a gale. It's a massive storm. Uh, it's a storm that reveals the, the true nature of these houses or, or these disciples. right? And I think uh, we think about this storm, generally speaking, uh, as as troubles in life. But it's the, the suffering we experience. And that, that's, that's a part of these storms. Right? But I, I I'm really sure it, that it's not primarily what Jesus has in mind. Oh, When Jesus is, is talking about this storm, he's talking about the storm of God's judgment. The, the final judgment day. In fact, you might have noticed that at this point in, uh, at this point in his sermon, uh, the reality of that judgment is really dominating Jesus' thinking. What did he talk about last week? He talked about uh, the broad road that was headed where? To destruction. It's it's judgment. He talked about false teachers. Remember, bad trees bearing bad fruit who would be cut down and thrown where? Thrown into the fire. He talked about people coming to him. He's just talked about this, saying, Lord, Lord, on that day, the, the day, right? It's the day of judgment. And now he's talking about a final storm of God's judgment. You see, this is dominating Jesus' thinking, Uh, this storm that that will test the foundations of of our lives. And and the the real tragedy is, isn't it, that he's saying that on that day, many foolish people with fine-looking houses will cry out to him, saying, Lord, Lord, from underneath the rubble of their homes that were built on sand. And Jesus will say, "Away from me, I never knew you." That's a, that's a horrible thought. But Jesus' point is it, that the living as a true disciple of His is responding to, to the authority of His words. Right? He, he's the King in God's kingdom. Right? So we just respond to the authority of His words by obeying His words, putting them into practice. And that's at least part of the point of verses 28 and 29. right? Have a look there at the end of the passage. Uh, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Why? Why? What was so amazing about it? Because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. Notice that. The distinctive mark of Jesus' teaching was that it came with this unique authority. right? Likewise, the distinctive mark of true disciples of Jesus is that they respect his authority as king, as as lord of their lives. They respect his authority by surrendering their whole life to him, by doing his word in every part of their life. So if we were to pick up that illustration of the house again, I wonder uh, which rooms in your house, in in your life, so to speak, uh, is Jesus not allowed to enter? He doesn't have clearance, doesn't have authority in that part of your life. He's got authority in the lounge room, but not so much in the kitchen or or the bedroom, right? You'll obey what Jesus has to say about giving to the needy or or praying, thinking of the Sermon on the Mount, or or marriage and divorce. But perhaps you won't obey him when it comes to what he says about lusting after other people or being a person of your word. That's not that important. Or, or, or cutting people to bits with your anger. Or, or living your life for him and his glory rather than for yourself and, and your glory. Right? Jesus, uh, there, There's certain parts of your house where Jesus has authority and you listen to his words and you put it into practice. But there are other parts where the door's closed. Right? Living as a true disciple of Christ is about surrendering to his authority in every part of your life. Not just the parts that are easy or Or, or comfortable. And you might say, well, why should I do that? Why should I hand over control of my life to Jesus? Why should I surrender my life to him? It's a good question. Let me point you again uh, to, that, to the way Jesus ends his sermon. All that talk of God's judgment. Now, it's very intense, isn't it? Right? Why can't he just lighten up and, and finish his sermon with a couple of jokes? A heartwarming story so we can go out. You know, It's kind of a Hollywood finish, like let's all leave. Right? Well, Why not do that? Because Jesus actually knows what's at stake. He actually believes in, in these eternal realities of heaven and hell. They're not just a fairy tale. He believes in them. So if you're a Christian, if you, if you say you take Jesus seriously, you have to take this seriously. The reality of God's judgment of, of heaven and hell. But if you're a Christian, isn't it? If you're a Christian, you don't have to, you don't have to worry about this. You don't have to be terrified by it. You don't have to have any fear at all. Why? Because Jesus is the only person ever who ever did do the will of his Father perfectly. We don't, but he did in our place. He's the one who did the will of his Father in heaven perfectly, never putting a foot wrong. He was willing to do the will of his Father in heaven all the way to the cross, wasn't he? For people like us, for people who do things wrong all the time. And so what did Jesus do? He walked that path to the destruction that you and I deserve. The bro- he walked that path. He was cut down and thrown into the storm of God's judgment. He cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he bore our sins, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, He became sin for us. It's like his father said to him, Away from me, you evildoer. doer. are you, You're forsaken. You see, we don't have to fear God's judgment at all if you're a Christian, if you trust in Jesus' death on the cross, because Jesus had already taken it all for you, for us. Now, that doesn't mean we get off the hook, does it? When it comes to obedience, when it comes to putting Jesus' word into practice. But it does mean that our motivation for obeying is radically different. Radically different, isn't it? The foundations of our lives, if you think about those houses, have been incredibly transformed, right? Because we don't obey Jesus' word out of fear, out of of guilt. As if we're somehow trying to earn God's love and acceptance. No, we obey Jesus' word out of thankfulness, out of joy. Because we know that in him, in his great work on the cross, we've already got God's love and acceptance. We're secure, completely secure in the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is ours, so let's live like it. Live as true disciples of Christ, you see. So that's the key, right? The more you understand what Christ was willing to do for you, the more deeply that penetrates your heart, not just a box you tick in your head, uh, the more you'll be willing to surrender your whole life to him. After all, what's the big deal in that? He's already surrendered his whole life for you. Why wouldn't you give your life to him? Uh, So you'll be a true disciple who doesn't just talk the talk, but walks the walk. Uh, who doesn't just hear Jesus' words, but does his words. Uh, Let me pray. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this part of your word this day and for the whole Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We thank you for uh, your Son, our Lord Jesus' uh, vision, uh, for what uh, your kingdom is going to look like. Uh, We thank you that because of him and his great work on the the cross, that he has borne uh, the fullness of your judgment uh, in our place, uh, experiencing our uh, destruction, are uh, being cast out from your presence, uh, because of our sins, because He bore our sins. We thank you because of His great work that we that the kingdom of heaven is ours, uh, that we've experienced your incredible mercy, that we're in, we're loved, we're secure, we're accepted. And we pray that as we know deeply uh, that we're loved and accepted by you as your children, uh, that you would move our hearts to want to be like you, to imitate you, uh, to commit to lives of, of true obedience as we surrender our whole life to Jesus, your Son. In his name we pray. Amen.